This is Coda Radio, episode 94 for March 24th, 2014. everyone, and welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. Episodes brought to you by our three fine sponsors, GoDaddy, Ting, and DigitalOcean. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here fantastic show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our excellent host on the East Coast, Mr. Michael Dominic. Hey there, Michael. Misa back! Yeah, yeah! Jar Jar. That's right. right. Okay, good. Because, you know, I'm always kind of like for a second thinking Mickey. I'm thinking like there's that split second where what if I call Mickey Jar Jar or Jar 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 Mickey? It's it's a lot of pressure, Mr. Dominic, right here at the beginning of the show. And it's the first show of the week, 9 a.m. And you put me right there on the spot. I got to tell you, you wake me up. How's it going over there on the East Coast? Yeah, it's good. I had a, a weekend in Atlantic City for my bachelor party. Oh, and you're you're uh, you're feeling OK? I'm feeling great. Wow, good on you. Like, look at that pro level. That's Took me a lot no. more years of podcasting before I learned I got to take it easy if I have a show on Monday. <laughs> I never said I took it easy. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. You just drank a lot of water? Uh, right, a lot of water, a lot of blackjack, yeah. Hey, I found it interesting, too. We were talking a little bit on the pre-show that uh, you're also rocking like a custom dominant coffee blend right now. Maybe that's uh, the secret. Yes, this is my betrayal blend. Uh, <laughs> so what we do is we take a base of what people like in the office. And let me grind in all the crap they won't drink. <laughs> yeah, you kind of—it's like putting water in the liquor a little bit to sort of uh, just water it, it down and. and well, it's clearing inventory. Yeah, really. exactly, exactly. You got to clear that inventory out of there. I mean, you pay good money for that. Uh, all right, Mr. Dominic. Well, we got a good show today coming up. I think we're going to talk a little bit about um, Android and why right. we're not seeing some heavy hitter developers making more money on that platform. And I don't mean like in terms of app sales. I mean in terms of actual developer salaries. Uh, and then we're also, if we get a chance, we're going to talk about Hack, uh, Facebook's new uh, hoopla. And uh, we've got a ton of feedback from last week's show that I want to get into. So why don't we start with some questions before we get into the follow-up stuff. Leonard wrote in, and uh, he's uh, he's from our younger demographic, and he has a question about learning iOS because his teacher kind of got, uh, got cut flat-footed. He says, this is an email from Mike. I just... I'm just about done with my second semester at the local tech school in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. The problem is our inspector kind of got caught with his pants down. The book we were to buy for class is Xcode 5 and iOS 6. But about two or three weeks into the semester, the tech tech crew at the school came through and updated the Mac labs. And now we're using Xcode 5 and iOS 7. Our instructor is doing great at showing how to use various different UI controllers in Xcode 5. But for any work we do outside the class, we have to rely on our textbook to guide us through. The first couple of months weren't a problem. I didn't even have to look at our textbook. But now that we're doing apps with more than one viewer seen, it's getting a little tougher. And we learn in class that our tools say we are, uh, uh, and what we learn in class and what our tools say are a lot different than what the textbook says. So what that long email is leading up to is, do you have a book or a learning resource you could recommend for iOS 7 dev in Xcode 5? The book we were supposed to be learning out of is Beginning iOS 6 Development by A-Press. Thanks for the great show, Leo. And I, I wanted to read this one for two reasons. Maybe we have a book recommendation for him, but two, uh, how is this not just going to be a massive problem for schools for years as these uh, as these platforms are so new? 
you know, if they have a yearly, uh, if they have a yearly release cycle and that release cycle lands halfway through a semester, I mean, what, what's the school going to do? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure why they would be so specific in a course like that. Um, uh, one thing I'd say is I would probably focus on learning the language, so learning Objective-C. So I'm going to link in the chat room a book called Programming and Objective-C. Okay. I have an older version of this by the same publishing company. Uh, this one seems to have been updated since then, which makes a lot of sense. Updated for Xcode 5, iOS 7, minus from iOS 4. Uh, but the quality of this company is pretty good. When I buy books, I do try to buy from these guys. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, they also that, have a Kindle edition, too. Drop that bad boy in the IRC, and I'll plop it in the show notes so you can grab it. Uh, yeah, I, I would say, you know, you can always roll with the changing API, but if you have a good grasp on the language, you're good to go. Um, and I, I I wonder if it's, you know, if you're trying to design interface stuff, too, there's a pretty big difference between iOS 6 and iOS 7, and so uh, that's going to be a problem as well. For sure, yeah. I just, I, oof. Ooh, all right. Well, uh, Leo, you can, you can find that yeah. book uh, in the show notes. All right. Our next email comes in from Alan M. about reinventing the framework. He says, Mike, Chris, longtime listener here. Well, thanks, Alan. And that's Alan with a one L and an M. Alan M., not Mr. Jude. He says, uh, I have a question about learning frameworks. I know Michael has talked about switching different frameworks like Java Play, .NET, and Rails, etc., I've heard it said that if you don't use a framework, you'll just reinvent one badly. I found this to be true. The problem is, even when I do use a framework, I I end up reinventing parts of it badly simply because, one, I don't know all the various nooks and crannies and convenience features that were built into the framework, and two, my approach to the design turned out to be just different enough from the framework designer's idea that I had to start over to utilize all of those features. Do you find this to be true when switching between frameworks? Do you try to adhere to the design framework, uh, what it expects, or just take the features you want from the framework and code the rest as you see fit? Thanks for any advice, Alan. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree with the, you know, that, that kind of adage, right? If you don't use a framework, you're going to rewrite one badly. Um, I tend to try and go with the flow on frameworks. So if I'm doing things in Ruby, I want to do it the Ruby way. I'm sorry, Rails, I want to do it the Rails way. Um, in Java Play, I try to do things the Java Play way. Do you, think, do you think, yeah. though, that's what... Do you think maybe that's what leads to... I don't want to call it burnout on a framework, but causes to grass is greener jumping because, like, you're living that framework's, uh, you know, world. You're in there. You're doing... You're doing... You're sort of living within the rules of that framework... Uh, but maybe you find yourself kind of unfulfilled, right. constrained, and so then you start looking at something else that maybe it looks a little better over there, so you jump. You think that might be what is that? what is the cause of that framework jumping? I, I think trying to prescribe a cause to something that big is probably not going to be a productive exercise. Mm. I would say that there's certainly picking the tool for the right job, right? And if you, let's use Rails because everybody knows Rails, right? If you're trying to do something in Rails that maybe isn't appropriate for Rails, then you're probably going to be reinventing things, doing things that don't make a whole lot of sense quickly. Yeah. So the answer is don't don't try to live outside the rules. I would say. I mean, I, I, I do know people who take bits and pieces and kind of do their own thing, but I, I prefer the past path of least resistance. Yeah. Uh, so one meta piece of follow-up, uh, we talked last week about Rails as a Ghetto, which was a 2007 piece, 
And I think a lot of people probably emailed us before they listened to the end. The idea there to discuss that, and I, I see, I hadn't seen this post either, so this was brand new for me. So it doesn't didn't matter that it was old. I, I think I think the idea, and it was a successful one, is we wanted to initiate a conversation. Uh, but we got a lot of people, Mr. Dominic, saying, "Hey guys, that's like ancient history." Well, might be. Yeah. True. So so. You know, and I did mention it in the beginning very quickly. I think, in fact, I did my New Jersey thing of talking way too fast. Um, and then I mentioned it again towards the end. The idea was that there have been a lot of conflicts like these very, very recently, one of which we're going to discuss pretty shortly. Um, and rather than pick apart individual, shall we call them nerd flame wars, I thought that bringing it back to something that was a little older, but you know, a little ranty, with a good point underneath it, would give a little bit of insight into the current issues, right? Yeah, it's a great piece because it's inflammatory enough that it holds people's attention, uh, but it's far enough away that we're no longer picking on any one particular right. group or people. Because, my, I mean, there's a few of these right now in the PHP community, and my concern was if we picked on them, it would just be, you know, 20,000 PHP developers emailing and, well, you hate PHP anyway, so... I think where our era was is I think yeah. what ended up happening is uh, Rails fans sort of took offense like they thought we were attacking and we were just using it as a conversation jumping point just to say well here's an example of what one community's conflict has been exactly so that's exactly what happened and they thought we were just picking on them for no apparent reason yeah Yeah. so they got a little defensive and that's okay so but we did generate some good conversation which we will talk about here in just a second but first you know what i'm going to do i'm going to thank one of our sponsors this week the awesome folks over at ting.com do you know about ting go to coderadio.ting.com to get started that landing page will save you $25 off your first month of service if you bring a device. If you don't have a device, you decide to go with Ting, it'll take $25 off your first device. So what is Ting? It's mobile that makes sense, and it's perfect for developers who have multiple devices that you need to test. You know, if you're making a mobile app, you really need to test it out in the field. You know, that's the unfortunate truth, and one of the most expensive things about developing for mobile, if you want to try it across multiple devices and form factors. This is where Ting rocks. It's $6 per device. That's all you pay. $6 plus whatever applicable tax. And then it's just your usage. So for example, I had for a couple of months the HTC One that I wasn't using for pretty much anything other than a hotspot because all Ting plans include tethering and hotspot. And then it's just you pay for the data usage. And then, so I'm not paying a ton of money. I'm not paying a bunch of money into something that uh, you know I'm not getting any value of because I'm just paying the $6 for the line. And then when Rekai got here, He moves into the studio. I gave him the HTC One, and now we're just paying for his usage. And he's on Wi-Fi a whole bunch, so it's just it's crazy economical. And and here's the hard numbers. Once you have about 10 devices, and I know for some of you that's way out there, but for some of you that's how many devices you need to test on. 100% of small businesses that have 10 devices save money. Most people, 98% of people with one device save money when they switch to Ting because Ting is only paying for what you use, no contract, and there's no early termination fee. And they have a really cool deal going on right now. If you go over to the Ting blog, ting.com slash blog, you can get there by going to quarterradio.ting.com too. They say, uh, we've noticed some room for improvement in the mobile industry. What do you think? If you submit a video on via YouTube to Ting before this Friday, March 28th, as and you outline in that video what you think needs to change in the mobile industry, because you know Ting is super passionate about this. If you win, you get a free Nexus 5, Brand new and four hundred dollars of Ting credit. That's like going to pay for a whole year of Ting, I would assume. So you can go over to the Ting blog to find out the details. There's a contest video that they have that they have also up there. You can watch to get the details uh, hosted appropriately on YouTube. 
So it's a great way to get into the Ting service if you've been thinking about it. And uh, I, I think all of us probably have a few comments on what could change in the mobile industry. So all you have to do is have an opinion about that, make a video, and then tag the Ting folks. Go read the blog. I mean, I would love for one of you guys out there to get a free Nexus 5 and $400 of Ting credit. That would be awesome. And if you've been thinking about a really economical way that makes a lot of sense that you can feel good about to manage multiple devices, I got to tell you, go check out Ting. They've got that awesome dashboard. It saves you time. You don't have to fiddle around with the phone company if you need to set up something pretty straightforward or check on usage. They have awesome 1-800 or 1-855 customer service support, 1-855-846-4389. You call that anytime between like right now and 8 p.m. tonight, and a real person will answer the phone immediately. Try it, 1-855-846-4389. Talk to them. Maybe they can help you get an account and tell them Coda Radio sent you. So go over to CodaRadio.ting.com and see what I've been talking about. Help clean up the mobile industry by voting with your wallet. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Coda Radio program. I'm loving the Nexus 5, although HTC One's coming soon. If you check their blog, they'll have uh, news about that when it lands on Ting. I thought they, they already had the one, dude. No, the new HTC One is like going to be announced tomorrow. In part, oh, is that real? There's an HTC One too. I thought I thought that was just a working name. Is that a real name? No, they're just going to call it HTC One. I think they're going like the iPad route, and they're just calling okay. it HTC One. And okay. I think the way I think it's going to come out in kind of a staged rollout. Like I think there might be a carrier exclusive initially, and then it's going to come out to all carriers after that. Uh, and either way, Ting's like ready to go. They already had a blog post about it. That's fantastic. So Sam wrote in, uh, one of the topics from that uh, uh, Rails is, uh, that Rails uh, post that we covered last week um, was the sort of meta story around contractors and how contractors have sort of affected the uh, uh, development industry. And so Sam wrote in with a defense for contract companies. What are you, are you, are you coding over there right now? What's going on over there? No, I would not be coding. You are totally terrible. coding right now. I, hear I you. kind of thought I hit the mute button. My bad. Funny. If, All right, well, you know what it is? It's, it's the Java code. Can't, can't keep me away. Well, while you finish that code, I'll, write a, uh, I'll, write, I'll read uh, Sam's note. He says, uh, Hi, I just started listening to your show and wanted to let you know it's definitely broadened my horizons quite significantly on so many different topics. But that isn't exactly why I'm writing in. I decided to go – I kind of trimmed this down a little bit. I decided after the segment on the Rails as a, a ghetto piece, especially the part on the con- consultant culture, as someone who works for a consultant company, I thought I might weigh in. I'd like to start with a little background on myself. At 27, I was fresh out of my master's program in computational linguistics, easy for me to say, completely unable to find a job outside of help desk. Due to the fact I had absolutely zero experience outside of all the projects I'd worked on in school, which never seems to count for anything. When, as luck would have it, one of those consulting companies contacted me, offering me a two-year contract and training. The training part really caught my attention, even though it felt maybe a little sketchy. I took the leap. And the training was great. Over an eight-week period, they taught you everything you need to know about J2EE. After eight weeks and passing their final exam, they put me on the market. And here's where the sketch starts. They write your resume. According to them, I have five years of experience across three, diff- across three different projects. In reality, I had no experience. Maybe you could argue I had eight weeks in one project, but I, I'd be in the same situation as before. No one would hire someone like that. So I accepted it as sort of a fake-it-till-you-make-it scenario. A second sketchy thing is they'll have multiple contractors apply to the same position, or set of positions, and the first person who does the interview informs oh, informs the others on the questions they ask to prepare the other contractors for their interviews. In the end, I got placed in the job. I've been working there for nearly a year and was surprised at how easy the work was. Barely use any of the stuff I had learned, just JSP, servlets, and SQL, essentially. 
Anyways, I just wanted to provide a view from the other side. I know I'm not a Ruby guy like he was complaining about, but I can definitely relate to the con- to the consultant culture. In the end, if you can't get over the sketchy feeling of having your resume being in such a massive lie, I'd highly recommend them for the free training and essentially guaranteed job, if you can handle that, if you can make it through the training. So that's a pretty interesting perspective where they... They get a little, you get a little insight into how those those big contracting firms can be a little sketchy, you know, faking the resume a little bit, having other people inform the other interviewees about the questions. You kind of get an idea yeah, of how this system a, works. <laughs> there's a little bit of shadiness going on. I mean, to, to devil's advocate this a little bit, uh, there are we we here at Fingertip gotten calls about well, we're looking for a company that has ten years in uh, you know mm-hmm. iOS and Android development experience. That's going to be really challenging considering the platforms didn't exist. Right. Right. So are these consulting companies being purposely dishonest or are they optimizing away the silly HR requirements, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think a lot of times you have people interpreting this information that don't even know what it means, too. Like maybe somebody just thought it was yeah. boilerplate. Ten years? Really? Come on, give me a break. I mean, I got off of a call very recently where I told the person, I said, well, that's, that's going to be really hard for you to find. And uh, I told her why, and she was like, oh, well, there's other people said they had it. I said, maybe they lied. Yeah. Uh, now, just- I've definitely, like, I'll give you an example. When I was in a, when I worked for a company that, uh, I was a contractor, but I was an employee of the company that, you know, other companies hired. Uh, they would sometimes sell web hosting, and it was like, you know, they would kind of sell it as something sophisticated, and it was just like on some shared server somewhere. And then sometimes they would do... Um, yeah, well, like we have developers in house, and they would take on a project that included IT and development work, and they would just outsource the development part to India. But f- they would act as the front t- to that outsource shop. So whenever the client, the client never really knew the work was being done in India, they just kind of thought the company, the contracting company, was doing it based on. It was never explicitly stated, but the way people talked, you know, it kind of just implied it pretty heavily. Yeah, so I've, there's. It seems to be in business. There's always a little bit of fibbing going on. You always have to be kind of sussing it out. And you know, if you you know, you look at you look at some pretty famous people who've made it big. They went through a big period where they thought they were going to be exposed as a fraud because maybe they had sort of exaggerated how ready a product was. Uh, I mean, you know, look at the iPhone, right? When Jobs demoed the iPhone up on stage, the, it only did the things he showed it doing. Like it was a right. total pile. It was not ready, and like. They had special builds of the phone app, and, and the guys backstage were positive that when he called Starbucks, it was going to crash. They were already preemptively taking shots because they were so panicked that Jobs was going to you know come back there and eviscerate them. I mean, everybody sort of, you know, I, I think there's there's sometimes there's gaps in expectations that can just be filled with a with you know kind of a wink and a nudge, and then you know you make it up on your on your own. I'm not justifying it, but I don't think it's actually as bad as it sounds. I don't think it's as awful as it sounds, and our industry has a a history, right? Microsoft, Apple, both faked being bigger companies for a very long time. Yeah. I remember Microsoft got its first real office because they straight up lied to IBM. Right. And and then had to get an office, right? Yeah. They were working out of a hotel or something for a while. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and... It is what it is, like... I, uh... You know, I've seen. Have you seen this story floating around? It was on Hacker News over the weekend that um, it's come out that the, the the documents have come out of like Schmidt, Apple, and Yahoo and Google, uh, all working together in like these kind of hush hush ways to keep uh, the the Silicon Valley wages lower. And uh, and I just thought, you know, you look at that, and everybody is kind of 
nobody's ever been 100% truthful in, in, in business, it seems, these days. Right. And I don't, I don't want to paint everything with a broad uh, brush. But I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, are you suggesting, because Chris, I don't believe you, that <laughs> Apple, Google, and all of our friends, and, you know, those guys, would do something with human resources disingenuously? They They have assured me, and of course our friends, John Boehner, and uh, Nancy Pelosi, that they need those H-1B visas because they have no influence on hiring tech people. They're, they're totally at our mercy. They're on their knees. You know, we need to help You them. know, that is an interesting point, right? You, so, so, yeah, so these are emails from Google's Eric Schmidt and Sergey Brin who show shady agreements not to hire Apple's workers. And this isn't the first time we've heard about this. Um, and if you think about the ramifications of this, these guys at the top of these Calling these companies rich is is disingenuous to the term. I mean, these companies are at a level of wealth in which we have never seen before. And here they are colluding together, especially Apple and Google, to keep their employees' wages lower. And at the same time, they're working at the other end to move those visas in, which will have the competitive effect of keeping wages lower. And while they're making unbelievable profits off of the intellectual product of these employees pretty it's pretty sick so i just i think we should just kind of go over what they did or allegedly did right no they're from the emails i mean it's from eric smith's email basically they made a deal that you will not poach employees of x seniority right and by poach it means everything from some of them weren't too bad right like you won't cold call our employees that you can kind of see okay because that's kind of jerky right Apple in particular went a little further that if an employee applies to your company, you will deep six the application. That straight up is illegal. Yeah, by here, my understanding. Here's an email from Sergey Brin saying, I got another, e- another irate call from Jobs today. Interesting that he doesn't even capitalize Jobs' name. Uh, I don't think we should uh, let that determine our hiring strategy, but I thought I'd let you know. Basically, he said, if you hire a single one of these people, that means war. Wow. Wow, he was a yeah. He was a passionate man. Uh, he says in in reviewing data below again, I do think this could be treated as a not just employee referral since he referred essentially a whole team. So a compromise would be to continue with the offer we've made, but not to make any offers of any others unless they have permission from Apple, i.e., no more hiring of staff from Apple unless we get permission from Apple, i.e., Jobs. Uh, here's a memo from Apple showing the company had the same agreement not to recruit from Google. This is coming from uh, one of Apple's uh, folks. She says, please add Google to your hands-off list, which obviously implies that there's a a list with these companies on there. We recently agreed not to recruit from one another, so if you hear of recruiting they are doing against us, please be sure to let me know. Please also be sure to honor our side of the deal. Then a non-compete agreement went far beyond Apple and Google. Here Schmidt relates a phone call he had with eBay CEO Meg Whitman and then orders his own recruiter to be fired because that person tried to poach the COO of eBay. Wow. Fired the recruiter at Google. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is very, you know, we're, we're kind of making jokes of it and I'm using it to hit my hobby horse with the visas, but this is, even what is obviously here in writing is a very, very serious problem. Yeah. I mean, these are just screenshots of their emails. Also, yeah, I, mean, I love that Eric Schmidt's using Outlook. That's great. Can you, <laughs> can you imagine if, uh, let's say McDonald's and Burger King did this? I mean, people are already in the streets in New York about McDonald's. 
apparently shortchanging people on their hours. Yeah, I mean, it seems it seems possible. I, right. This the thing is the thing that's the thing that particularly bothers me about this is, um, <clears throat> you know, I don't mean to get so political, but sometimes technology and politics collide. But America has few remaining really productive money making industries that are that are made yep. in America, right? Yep. Uh, I mean, yeah, we can frack. And we can we can dig up and and make shale oil. Shale oil. Yeah, that's great, uh, and that's that's currently our big industry again. But hey, let's be real here, like long term sustainable, it's got to be. We've got to support our tech industry, and America right. has you know a lot of really great companies that started here in the U.S. and the United States, and this kind of stuff is fundamentally eroding what all of those companies require to create the next generation product. And if you are driving away the intellectual talent, they're just going to go somewhere else. It's not like people are just going to decide to be stupid. I mean, they're going to go somewhere where there's money. They're not going to be dumb. Right? And who, if, if, you had a, if you got a job offer from some company in India that was 4x what you were making in California or China or wherever it was, you'd probably give it serious consideration. And so these, I- this is another – to me, this is a short-term thing, right? I mean everything they're asking for, the H-1 visas, these collusion agreements, all suppress the salaries in the very short term. The problem is I – mean, this, this could be wrong, but I, I firmly believe we're always going to need more software. Always, always, always. Yeah, and replacing software. We always need to replace the software right. that we have. So you're – sure. In the short term, if we you know, open the borders totally, you would lower local salaries temporarily. Which would, by the way, would destroy a part of the economy if you did that. Just throwing it out there. Um, but eventually, the let's say India, for example, the Indian developers aren't going to be so cheap, right? This is a temporary condition. Mm, exactly. Um, and what happens, like, if you take this thing ten, twenty years down the road, where uh, right now, if you combine India and China, their economy outflanks right. the U.S.'s economy. And right. and there and that that trajectory seems to be continuing. So let's let's take this out twenty years. Uh, aren't you just fundamentally robbing yourself of the very resource you require to make great code and great products? And and it's not just developers; it's it's sysadmins. It's it's yep. the whole stack. Whole stack. It you know it just seems like a very short term cost cutting uh, measure they're taking. And. Especially even, even we, without the conspiracy bacon, the political stuff, the bottom line is this type of collusion is, is absolutely illegal. It, right? it hurts is, the whole industry because the whole industry takes cues from what Silicon Valley is doing in the tech. tech you know, even up here in Seattle where we have Amazon and Microsoft and Nintendo and T-Mobile, all these companies are up here, and yet we still take cues from what Silicon Valley is doing. Right. And I think one of the issues, you know, you know, when the McDonald's workers are complaining about their wage being compressed by McDonald's people, it's if newspaper, you know, journalists are writing about it, it's in the streets. It's very hard to sympathize for a developer who you know makes sixty five thousand dollars out of school or whatever he makes, right? Mm-hmm. That's probably in California that makes sense. I mean, I can tell you in New York, in California, salaries are much higher than they are even in New Jersey. There, there is something of a regional inflation going on there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would caution. You know, these companies spend so much on so many stupid things. Right. right? Lobbying, right? Or just their CEO pay or whatever it is or stupid device of the week that they're, right. they're, they're pimping to pump their stock price. Right. Or I, I, I've heard some justifications for this, but I really don't think any of them are valid. I think this is just old school union boss collusion here, right? 
just like you know the automakers used to do. This is the same thing, except no one feels bad for the tech workers because they make more money, and that's what it comes down to. It's just yeah, yeah. I mean, this is something. This is you're right. We should. I think you. I think you just nailed it. We'll move yeah, on. But I feel like I should, could. I could whip this horse for hours. Well, I would hours. say just for the JBE crowd. I know many of you are of a certain persuasion. Look into these issues that are going to directly affect you, and when you go to vote, try to not vote on passions. Try to vote in your interests. Vote on their history, on their record. Right, vote uh, on their record. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. All right, well, I'll get to our next email from Tom. Tom writes in. He says, DigitalOcean wins, guys. I just yes, thought I'd they let, do. I just thought I'd let you know that thanks to you and a few others, I now recommend, recommend DigitalOcean to me. I finally got around to signing up for their $5 a month plan. Uh, for playing around with it. I forgot to use your code, however, but they let me input the Coda Radio March after I had bought it and I got the $10 credit, which is a lifesaver when you're a penny-saving student like myself. Thanks very much for sending me their way. The server will be used for various projects I have going on at the moment. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Tom. So why don't I mention DigitalOcean, one of our amazing sponsors here on the Coda Radio program. What is DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean is simple cloud hosting dedicated to offering the most intuitive way and easy way to spin up a cloud server. Users can create a cloud server in 55 seconds. And pricing plans start at only $5 per month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, a CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. DigitalOcean also has data data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, and Amsterdam. They have a simple interface, an intuitive control panel, and power users can replicate that control panel with their straightforward API. I want you to go try it. If you've been thinking about developing something and you want to actually get it up on the web, if you want to throw a few users at it, if you're sick and tired of setting up port forwarding on your router, if you want to learn something or put something in production, there are massive sites that run off DigitalOcean. Some of the biggest sites on the web run off DigitalOcean, and the pricing plans scale from that $5 a month or all the way up to something that's just a massive powerhouse. They also have hourly pricing if you just need to do some testing. And at every step of the way, their pricing structure is straightforward, and it makes a lot of sense, and it's got an incredible value. Here's what I want you to do, though. I want you to try it for two months for absolutely free. Use the promo, use the promo code Coder Radio March. Coder Radio March will get you a $10 credit. You grab that $5 rig. Bob's your uncle. You got it for two months. I've been using the $5 rig now for quite a while, and it just keeps getting better because DigitalOcean continually iterates their design. They really find something that works well, that they have they, they internally love and that their customers love, and they iterate, 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 and make it better and better and better. DNS management. You can resize servers in a single click. Auto backups and snapshots, which is so great for that. Oops, got to go back. Full HTML5 web console, two-factor authentication, one-button install. And as one of our listeners pointed out, you can also choose between 30 32 and 64-bit architectures. So you could just pay $5 a month and have a 32-bit machine up in the cloud that you could cross-compile on, and you have a 64-bit machine locally or vice versa. It's really awesome, and their integration with Docker, and they have several distributions you can choose from, all running on top of KVM. So go over to digitalocean.com, use promo code March, and go make something cool. Go train yourself something, go put something in production, go set up your own mail server, your own XMPP server, your old CalDev server, maybe it's the back end for your app that you're going to put in the app store and make millions. Whatever it is, put it up on DigitalOcean. And if you're a TechCrunch reader, don't miss DigitalOcean's journey from tech star reject to cloud hosting darling. TechCrunch just did a great piece with several videos on DigitalOcean. They are blowing up, you guys. They are going big time. And this is a pretty great write-up. I read it last night, and uh, it's really interesting to see how far they've come and what a cool company they are. You get to uh, see the founder or co-founders 
and a little bit of the office scene in there. So that's over on TechCrunch and just look for DigitalOcean. It's a great write-up on uh, how awesome those guys are. And they're also hiring, by the way, over at DigitalOcean. If you click that We're Hiring button, they have open positions. And uh, I think now is a great time to join their team. So go over to uh, DigitalOcean.com and use that promo code Coder Radio March. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. Go get yourself an SSD-powered cloud server. Why not? Okay, our last... Uh, well, that's no, not really true, but we'll get to the hoopla after this one. Uh, so Mike Cookie writes in about the price of innovation. Hi, Chris and Mike. I recently heard an episode of the Spark podcast from CBC Radio in which they talk about how innovation comes from scarcity. Now, this right here got my attention because this is something I think about a lot because a lot of the things I love were created in an environment of scarcity, and a lot of the things that Jupiter Broadcasting has done were created in an environment of scarcity. So this, he says, this got me thinking. This has got me thinking too. He says, which, uh, how how are all, <clears throat> sorry, how we all expect large companies to innovate and bring new products, but we forget that they're sitting on large piles of resources which make them invincible and keep them in a company of yes-men. In an interview, they mentioned that the concept of what's in front of me versus what do I need to achieve from the ground up and the similarities that it shares with the open source movement. Anyways, that was just something interesting that I wanted to share. Looking forward to the next show. Keep making my favorite podcast. He also includes a link to the CBC page for the Spark episode where they talk about this. What do you think about this, Mr. Dominic? Is scarcity... Requirement for the next big thing, like right now, I think you know an industry that's coming along pretty pretty nicely right now is the VR industry. And I look at the Oculus Rift, and I look at how that small team is achieving something that no other large company, when they've dabbled with VR, has even gotten close to. And or you look at Digital Ocean, who is just massively blowing up right now because they're doing a set of things really, really well. And they're focused on that because they're like a team of like 50 people or something like that. They're really super focused. And I wonder if when you have a scarcity or even look at some of my favorite TV shows, like the TV shows that were up against the wall with budget and time have some amazing gems that come out of them. Uh, And it's almost like that scarcity forces you to be creative in a way that you, if you, if you had the luxury not to, you wouldn't bother with. And I wonder, what do you think? Do you think there's a certain cap on innovation when you get too big? Well, I think you become more conservative, right? It becomes more challenging to take risks because there's more people to say no. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not going to cannibalize. I mean, this is the Microsoft effect, right? You really don't want to cannibalize the product that's making you all your money. Yeah, very true. And and it's it's sort of like, well, this is already making us so much money, so I kind of hate to you know, jettison this thing over here. And I think too, part of it is like when you're, when you're small and lean, you don't know what you don't know. And so you don't know why you shouldn't get into that. But when you're big, you've got a lot of people that are are able to analyze the situation and go, this is a really bad idea uh, for a lot of reasons. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't bother with it. And then next thing you know, they avoid it. Right. And I, I think that also plays a part of it. Like people like maybe just don't know any better when they're really small. You think that's possible? Yeah, I think make, it's possible, but I, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. To me, a lot of it, I see a lot of like, especially in organizations that are going from medium size to large, a lot of, there's a lot more process, but there's a lot more risk too, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, particularly you get a lot more accountants, a lot more people like that who are kind of trying to mind your P's and Q's. Yeah. Looking at the cost, looking at the bottom line, looking at the cost, the bottom line, you know, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I also feel like this this innovation, I guess, fad that we're going through, things aren't any slower than they've ever been. It's just that right now we're in the phase of milking the pro- profits from the last innovation, which we always went through. Yeah. Any new invention. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and how long that milking process lasts depends on the product. Right. So right now we're in that for mobile phones and mobile devices. Right. Right. That, well, that, um, that's kind of a good jumping point to uh, talk about our first Hoopla topic. This was uh, from Synod Bra- Bowles. Um, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm actually I'm positive I'm getting that wrong. But uh, he wrote he wrote a great piece on uh, let's see well, I think it was just yesterday or the day before I caught it over the weekend I don't know if you saw this but the headline is why don't designers take Android seriously and he uses a chart from Asimco uh, who, who does a really great job of breaking down the mobile sales and you know he just you know this chart just demonstrates that Android utterly dominates I mean it is it it is at the density now that no other platform we may ever see again. I mean, it's just unbelievable how much Android sales are. Uh, Android is gobbling up market share at an unprecedented rate, he writes. Now, this doesn't make it a one-horse race. This market is this market share is coming at the expense of feature phones, Symbian, and BlackBerry. It doesn't appear to be taking much from iOS, nor will we necessarily end up with a mirror of the PC-Mac split. The total addressable market for handsets is far larger than that for computers. Uh, Android utterly dominates emerging markets. It's clear that major tech companies recognize this and may have launched low and many have launched low end Android clients to address these markets. So his general point is that with all of the data in front of us, we continue to not really see Android first app application development. And what he specifically is talking about is if you as a developer want to make a good wage, the money right now is like seven to one on iOS. Uh, he says, he goes on to say, these tiny, cheap, connected devices are going to need an operating system, preferably one that's free, reliable, and well-maintained and has good interoperability. It won't be iOS, since Apple appears to have no interest in licensing it to third-party hardware. I also don't think it's going to be another OS. The other OSs, like Windows, Windows Phone, Firefox OS, Linux, etc., they lag far behind or have retrograde trajectories. Windows! I also don't think it's the web browser. In theory, the browser meets the criteria cheap, ubiquitous, interoperable. And the web community would love it to win. But bluntly, it's losing in terms of capabilities, performance, user experience, and that's where native apps are far ahead. Uh, He goes on to say that he thinks the reason, despite all of this data, despite all the data that indicates Android is going to continue to blow up, probably reach adoption that is at, at a number that is just unconceivable to us right now, he says. Why are, why are developers avoiding it? Number one argument is, he hears, Android is difficult. He says, these arguments we have for, are familiar. Fragmentation is a hassle. The landscape is too fluid. Android lacks design aesthetic. And the Android UX is poor. Um, he says, but the world itself reflects the subtle, the word itself reflects a subtle framing issue. It's not hard to think of a positive synonym. Fragmentation is choice. Fragmentation is diversity. As web developers have learned over the last few years, device diversity is natural, welcome, and manageable. Many responsive web design techniques, e.g. fluid layout, breakpoints, resolution, and dependence, are essential principles of Android design. In fact, they're handled in a more technically profound way on Android than the web. My uncharitable interpretation for this class of response is simple laziness. Mr. Dominic, I turn to you, sir. What do you think? Get the hell out of here. Is this, are you on board with this guy so far? Is Android going to continue to blow up? And is it, is this Android is difficult thing? Does it come down to laziness? 
Is, fra- would, is a fragmentation maybe a sign of developers not willing to dig in and learn how to do it right? So I would definitely agree that Android is going to continue to blow up. I think that's probably the end of where I agree. Um, you, it, is it lazy when you don't devote time to the platform that's not making you any money? Now, having said that, at, at Fingertip, we're having a different experience. We are getting a lot more calls about Android work. Okay. Do you think but those having, are? Do you think that's because those are uh, like internal projects for the companies, or are they outward that's facing? That's exactly what I was going to say. They're uh, they're internal B two B style. Yeah. I don't think that's a bad thing, though. I mean, Android Android's huge. It's just it, you know, it's just kind of where where it's going to be. It, well, so you're kind of your point about I'm not making money on Android, or right. developers don't make as much money. He says. He defines this as, well, user behaviors are different, quote-unquote, is a frequent response. The other replies were mostly variations on the thing that Android users don't pay for apps. They don't have data plans. You can't monetize them easily. Economically, it seems short-sighted at best, he argues. Revenue models for digital products are fluid, and it can be good business sense just to... It can't. It can't be good business sense just to write off a majority user base. So his point is, look, they're so big that you, you're robbing future Mike if you don't make apps for Android. Even though today Mike might not make any money, future Mike might be robbed if you're not in this massive ecosystem. Biggest operating system on the planet. Maybe, but that's not a business plan. Right, and that's uh, like, well, but today Mike needs to pay rent. Right. right? And, so I, this, 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 he, his argument goes on too, kind of more off the rails. He says, and this is like his argument for the fact that users don't pay for Android apps. His argument is, it, it's not, it doesn't, he doesn't really have anything solved. Like he says, I hope, given tech's rhetoric about changing the world and disrupting outdated hierarchies, that we don't really think that only those with revenue potential are worth our attention. Mr. Dominic. How do you feel about that? He's saying if you don't care about other users, there's something wrong with your moral fiber. Oh, I mean, there there's always a place for charity organizations in the world, right? But I think a lot of independent independent developers would probably agree that they have extremely constrained resources, and you know, even as a significant revenue drop for even a month could be near fatal. I I think he actually, and this is this is what gets me about people who are not thinking this through. And I mean, he is, I guess I shouldn't say that because he obviously has thought this through very deeply. It's, it's very well written. Uh, he makes some very compelling arguments. But I actually think if you read what he writes, you can find the problems in, he even admits them. Like here he says, it's clear, uh, he says, Android is utterly dominating in emerging markets. It's clear that major tech companies recognize this and many have launched low-end Android clients to address these markets. Well, that's the problem right there. You know, fragmentation isn't just screen sizes. It's these wonky one-off implementations where maybe it, it doesn't have uh, it doesn't have the Google mobile services, the Google Play services. Uh, maybe it's like a, a version two or early four o version of Android. I just saw a cheap tablet launch with a super old build of Android, and I don't understand why these companies are doing this because they are right. hurting their own market i mean this guy right here lays out what the problem is low-end devices low-end devices with low-end cpus and memory also mean low-end operating system low-end apis outdated stuff bugs that people have solved years later that they still are afflicted by 
And who the hell is going to want to spend their precious time and resources developing for a system that is way outdated, that has a short lifetime? And the only people are people who are going to have a model where they generate revenue off the usage of a service, I would say. These, These types of devices are going to be carrier crapped up. They're going to be loaded with, you know, carrier music stores, carrier video stores, and the carriers will make all of the money. And that's what these devices are going to be used for. And if you want people to directly buy the applications, I don't think it's unreasonable to target a certain sector of the market. It's not racist. It's not, it's not excluding anybody. It's when I sell a product, I have to sell that product to the appropriate market that is willing to buy that product for the value that I've put on it. And, and it doesn't mean that so first of all, saying that someone who focuses predominantly on iOS and not on Android is foolish, well, if they're small, probably not, right? Um, well, and I, don't think it's, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I think a lot of different developers, a lot of particularly small development companies can win without having to do everything, right? That, Let me how ask silly you this. would it be if you told me VB6 had a huge market share still? Why doesn't Fingertip Tech do VB6? Well, you know, right? a, trend, a trend I have noticed is it really feels like in, in – in like the popular culture online that Microsoft once had this strong dominance on the developer community. And you used to hear phrases like, man, I'd love to develop for another platform, but the tools I need are only available on Windows. That's the only place I can get them. That's the only place I can get this tools on Windows and I need this tool to do my job. So I run Windows. And you know what I've been hearing now more lately and like a lot more is, well, that tool I need is on the Mac. Well, all these develop, you know, I was at this developers conference, everybody had Macs. And Apple has grabbed that position. And so I think part of it, and I'm wondering if you disagree, because I know you're on a Windows box right now. Uh, do, do, do the tools the developers want to use drive what platforms they target? I.e., if I hate Eclipse, if I think Eclipse is crap, aren't I going to be more likely not to want to develop my, my passion app in Eclipse? And if I think Xcode's better, I mean, just that decision right there could determine what platform I target. Now, is that literally the source of some of these decisions, do you think? Some of it, yeah. I mean, it's tough, right? Because there has been a shift towards the Mac. There has been a shift. All right, if I'm already doing, if I'm already on the Mac, why not do iOS, right? Because that's a pretty good market to be in. Um, you know, in terms of the lock-in stuff, I think it's a little different, right? Because back in the, the, the 90s and the MS days, it was a much stronger form of lock-in than Apple has right now. Because frankly, a lot of the utilities people are using on Mac are BSD utilities mm. that they kind of have to, you know, MacGyver together with Homebrew or something like that to get mm. to not suck. Well, the other thing too is a lot of these utilities, uh, Xcode aside, interact with third-party services like, uh, like for example, GitHub, or they interact with Brew or all these other things. Whereas the Microsoft tools in the past generally worked all within the Microsoft ecosystem and connected to other Microsoft products. So it's a whole another level of lock-in because it would sort of lock you into that ecosystem where the developer tools available for the Mac outside the Xcode stuff is fairly like service independent, just depending on the tool. So right. I mean. You get sucked, not sucked in, but you, you end up on the Mac if you're doing mobile because of iOS, whether right. you liked it or not. And then you kind of branch out from there. Yeah. And the thing is, you can do Eclipse develop, you can do Android development on, uh, on the Mac too. So if you buy that platform, you can develop for both. Exactly. So yeah. Uh, and I, I think too, I, I, you know, um, Angela has an iPhone 5 and, um, I can't help but just just think that even Google's own apps 
are a better experience on iOS. And I don't understand, like, it's just, it, it kind of perplexes me to this day. And if I was going to spend money on a lot of apps, I would want the better apps. If I'm going to spend the money, I think I'd rather buy them. I think, you know, generally I buy them on my iPad because they're generally better applications. So even though I have a couple of Android devices, I, you know, I buy apps on the Android, but I probably, it's probably a two to one ratio. So there's, there's the, the app experience too. Uh, something to think about. Maybe you're just an Apple fanboy, Chris. Mm, well, I do like my iPad, but that's about where that love ends. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's really just a few things Apple could do and I'd like them a lot more. I, you know what? I'll tell you this. I think I'm more of a fan of Tim Cook era Apple than I am of Steve Jobs era Apple. Like I feel like Tim Cook has dialed back like the the anti Android rhetoric quite a bit. Right, I feel like right. he's, you know, got a little bit more of a steady hand. And I I actually think like Apple probably gets more crap than they deserve these days. So I would say I'm not. I used to be really quite like uh, hostile towards Apple. I think as I've gotten older, that opinion has changed. And honestly, you know, I have some Mac hardware, and it's just been good hardware too. And that's sort of changed my tune as well. I just. I like, you know, we were talking about frameworks. That's how I feel about Macs. I feel like I immediately want to do more than what this OS allows me to do. And the hardware itself right. limits what I can do as well uh, because of like the way they manage all these, you know, internals like cooling and things like that. Uh, but let me talk about something I do like quite a bit before we jump into our last topic of the day. And that is GoDaddy.com because guess what, guys? The deal is back. Use the promo code 295CODER when you check out. You'll get a $2 and 95 cent domain additional domains 999 after that so still a great deal and uh, they have special uh, there's special uh, um, you know like uh, things you need to know if uh, like limitations and whatnot they have linked at the top of their webpage but if you use the promo code 295 coder when you check out 295 coder Danica will personally deliver you a two dollar and 95 cent domain and she is buff she's buff right now you guys so watch out because well, if you don't get a 295.com, she might punch you in the face. And when a .com is this great of a deal, it's kind of nuts not to get your piece of the real estate. We got, uh, here's a great example. When you can get your .coms at $2.95, you can take advantage of GoDaddy's fantastic forwarding service. Yesterday, during the Linux Action Show, somebody took advantage of this offer and got uh, Monkey Suit Action, was it, uh, what was it, Chad? MonkeySuitActionShow.com? Or Monkey Action Show, MonkeyActionShow.com, which redirects to the Monkey Suit edition of the Linux Action Show. And that... You know, from now on, if people ever want to watch the Monkey Suit edition of Last, they just go to um, monkeyactionshow.com. Bob's your uncle. It goes right there. It's just a simple way to set up a forwarder. You get a great .com for $2.95. And then later, if you wanted to point it at a server or whatever it was, you could take that redirector out. But that redirecting thing works so great. And grab a few domains because the additional domains are, domains are just $9.99. So go over to GoDaddy.com. Use the promo code 295CODER when you check out to get a great .com on the world's number one domain name registrar. And a big thank you to GoDaddy for sponsoring the Coder Radio Program. 295.coms, 295coder. Okay, Mr. Dominic Russell wrote in about the hack programming language. He says, hey guys, I'm a PHP developer, so I'm aware that the language has some issues. Even with its warts, though, PHP is functional and well-supported. It may not be hip, but it's easy to do the things I need. I was very frustrated to hear that Facebook has decided to fork PHP into its own language, hack. Why not work with the community to improve PHP rather than shrinking their effort into a project with no community? What are your thoughts? Love the show, Russell. So what do you think of hack, Mr. Dominic? Is it a hack? <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> well, first of all, when you're doing anything off of PHP, you need to reevaluate your life. Oh my god! Uh, no, I'm just I'm just playing with. Get it out of here. Exactly. <laughs> um, PHP hack. I I don't think it's a great idea for anyone to move over to that. Uh, I actually pretty much agree with Marco Arman almost entirely. Yeah, Marco had a post up on his blog that we'll have a link to in the show nizzles and. Um, where what he basically said is uh, he kind of he seems like he kind of falls down with you. He says PHP has always been poorly designed and poorly stored, but it's appealing to developers because it's easy to learn. Tons of programmers already know it. It's everywhere and runs on everything. It's very fast. It's very simple to host and maintain server side. In short, it's extremely practical, which is something we're big fans of. Right. But he says that uh, he thinks he kind of fall, he comes says that yesterday Facebook announced hack a new language that also runs on HHVM. It's like PHP plus plus. It adds optional static typing generics and a bunch of other enhancements and conveniences to PHP. He says, unlike adopting HHVM, it's not like a huge risk. But he does point out that he thinks that since Facebook is migrating its own code to hack, pure PHP will become a less tested second-class citizen on HHVM. This could devalue HHVM to the outside world, throwing away the benefits it's bringing to PHP programmers everywhere. The closeness the closeness of the two languages will probably prevent this from becoming a significant problem, but it is a problem nonetheless. He says, but I'm mostly glad to see hack. So uh, this is something that Facebook does. Like they write it in PHP and they were compiling it down, right? But now they're just starting over with hack? Am I following this? This seems like Facebook is, this seems like a big change for Facebook. Yeah, Facebook had their hip hop VM. They were doing a number of crazy things to make PHP fast. Um, you know, I, I don't. I guess I kind of understand why Facebook would want to do this. I don't know why a third party developer would want to jump on board. That was what that, I was going to ask. Like, what yeah. is the incentive? Right. I mean, obviously, you know, Facebook's making it so PHP executes faster, right? That's a very over. You know, that's a very simplified version of what they're doing. But basically, Facebook's stick is performance. Why would you want to jump on this? It's very new, so you know I hate it already. Mm-hmm. Um, and Facebook could just change their mind again. That's what I was thinking. And you yeah. know, though, I made that same argument about Go, and Go's blown up. But Go has been around for a while, right? So at this point, it's probably pretty safe to do something in Go. Yeah. I, um, You know... I don't trust any of these. Like uh, two weeks ago, we talked about uh, Zamarian's uh, product, right? And my right. my thought was, is yeah, it looks it looks compelling, but my problem with Zamarian is they've changed what they do three or four times, and I don't trust them to stick with anything. The next day after that episode, uh, Miguel de Casa tweeted that he just got back from a trip to Microsoft, and then the next day after that, the rumor was all over the web that Microsoft might be buying Zamarian. And then what right. does that mean for people who are relying on Zamarian? Well, I, I think that's either – I mean, that's probably a good thing, right? I don't know. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think for the short term, yes. But I, I am, I'm becoming more and more cynical about these great initiatives that these larger companies buy up because they seem to just kind of let them wither and die. And if you're betting, if you're betting your house on, on the Zamarian platform to, to sell your apps and create your apps, uh, I'd be a little nervous about Microsoft picking that up. I feel like Microsoft in that case – wants to get back to being the premier development stack, so they definitely wouldn't hurt. Uh, 
I hope. I think you're probably. I don't right. think they'd hurt America. But I think even if they rolled it into their overall product strategy, that generally hurts it. Like I think they've already just begun to screw up Skype. Maybe Ooh. I'm being a little pessimistic. But my point, getting back to Go, was that that was also why I didn't trust Go because Google, Google, you know, changes their mind and they integrate things that didn't used to be integrated. They change whatever they, direction they're going, or they drop products altogether, and it seemed really risky. But now, you know, Go has such momentum. It has such such scale right. that it's. I think that risk is pretty much gone but there's that risk is totally 100% there for hack right I mean what if Facebook comes out in in another three years and says all right hack was great got us good three years we rolled out the new timeline built in hack and it was amazing and now we've got you know XWAC or whatever they're going to call it next do you think that's a possibility or do you think this is their final landing Uh, no I think it's extremely high risk with Facebook Um, I think Facebook changing so many times just that they're having some pains from from just their scale and I'd also say that there are very few people who have Facebook's problems. Is this a comment on PHP as well? Because again, we're trying to, you know, we start with PHP and we're trying to move away, move away and change it. Is this, is this a commentary on that at all? Or is this just Facebook? That's, that's a tougher conjecture to make. Yeah. I would think so. Because I think if that comment was made, it was made a while ago when they, when they rolled out HHVM. Uh, I... I find this fascinating to watch. I will be really curious if anybody out in our audience has any inklings to kind of pick up and play with this. And if you do, why? What about it is appealing to you? Because I don't want to just hate it because it's Facebook. And if they're going to make something genuinely awesome, I'd like to know more about it. And if you have any insights or perspective out there on what's great about it and why you might want to use it for your projects, let us know. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, and choose Coder Radio from the dropdown. And guess what? You could do that for any topic we discussed today. Last last week when we when we talked about uh, Ruby uh, Rails is a ghetto, we did that specifically to sort of spur a conversation because this show is really powered by your interaction, discussing with you. And so every now and then we like to plant little seeds. So if you have any thoughts on the Android stuff and why developers are not taking Android seriously as they should, especially and I don't, when I say developers, I mean like the rock star, like, we make all the money developers. Like, they they seem to so far be ignoring Android. I'd love to know why you think that is and if you see that changing. I think I've seen it change a few times, but let us know. Go over there, click that contact link, and you can also submit a thread in our subreddit, coderadio.reddit.com. And I will make a plea, too. If you've been enjoying the Coder Radio program and you haven't commented or rated in iTunes for a while, we don't have very many iTunes users out there. So if you're one of them, we need your help. Please rate and comment on the Coda Radio podcast in iTunes. The reason you do that is it it uh, juices up the search algorithms and makes us show up in the rankings when people are searching for developers' podcasts. So it helps people find the show. As we call it in the biz, it helps with discovery. It helps with discovery. Mr. Dominic, is there anything else you want to cover before we run this week? No, I think we're good. All right, well, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wrap us up, and then I'm going to run over to the new studio, and uh, we're going to get some desks built, some light fixtures replaced. It's go time over there. I'll tell you what, we're getting closer and closer. I tested the internet last week, get 105 megabits down. Nice. It was rocking. It was rocking. Well, if we wanted to send people to find you out throughout the week, Mr. Dominic, where would you suggest they go? Go to fingertip tech dot, uh, fingertip dot technology. Fingertip technology. Fingertip dot technology. That's rocking. That's right. And at fingertip tech on Twitter, right? That's right. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter as well, twitter.com slash chrislas. You can also check the calendar, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. We have some stuff coming up in early April that you'll want to watch. It's going to be live only, as well as we convert the uh, live shows to your local time zone when you visit that page. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Coda Radio. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>